Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. We are continuing our series in the English Reformation with the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me again. I haven't worn out my welcome yet, so I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> I was going to make some sort of English Reformation joke there about wearing out a welcome, but I, I won't. Oh. <laughs> that would be bad. That would so, be very bad. <laughs> this No, this has been a fantastic series, and I just love all the history that you share with us mm-hmm. because I feel like I'm sitting in one of your classes except for I'm not there physically in the class, so I get to learn all this alongside our listeners. I hope our listeners are enjoying it as much as I am. <laughs> so last time we left off, we had learned a little bit about Henry VIII. Do you want to pick up with Henry VIII again today? Yeah. Because it sounds like there's a lot more yet to <laughs> learn about Henry VIII in this English Reformation story. Yeah, there really is. He, he's a major player. And what we learned last time was, in a sense, his most important contribution to the English Reformation as a whole was his separation from the Pope. In 1534, at Henry's request, Parliament passed a law which declared Henry to be the supreme head of the church in England. And that meant the Pope was out and the king would now have kind of the last word about what was taught, who the personnel were, settling conflicts. All of that responsibility would now rest upon the king. So, that's a that's big deal stuff. But what we haven't mentioned were any kind of doctrinal changes, anything that would kind of show that the Church of England was going to believe or teach something different from the old medieval church. So that's a, a part of the story that we're still going to have to get to. The other thing I think we should recall about Henry's break with Rome is that Henry uh, worked through worked with and through some very capable people whose names we should mention in connection with the Reformation that occurred under Henry. One of them was a polit... Well, let me put it this way. There are two Thomases. Yeah, so it gets a little confusing. So if you're taking notes, be careful here. One was Thomas Cromwell. He's a politician. He's Henry's principal secretary. He's the closest to what we might call today a prime minister. He's kind of like the head of the government under the king. The other Thomas was Thomas Cranmer, and he is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, in the English church today, it's still true that the most important of the ecclesiastical officers is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And that was true in the Middle Ages and is true in the 16th century. So when we talk about Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, we're talking about the main man in the, in the Church of England. And these two Thomases were both inclined in a real Reformation direction. In other words, a Reformation that would change the worship life of the church, that would change the doctrine of the church. The first of these men, Thomas Cromwell, the politician, we can't say for sure how Protestant he was or how Lutheran he was. We just know that he's an advocate for 
change in the church. And a couple of things happened while he was advising the king, and I'll talk about those in just a second. But Cromwell had kind of risen from the ranks of the middle class, and he had risen on account of his abilities, his intelligence, his personality, got along well with people. But the fact that he could deliver when the king gave him a task, he could get it done. And he's, it's an illustrating, he's an interesting example of what's taking place here in that we now start to get high government officials who get there without being connected to noble families or other important families in the realm. No, he got there through his basic capabilities. Cranmer, too, is interesting. His story is very interesting. And with respect to him, because he's a churchman, we can kind of detect his kind of religious leanings. Cranmer had gone to Cambridge. He was a part of that White Horse Inn group that we talked about the other day. That was the group of those interested in Reformation ideas, the little Germany of scholars, young scholars interested in what was going on on the continent. Well, he'd been a part of that group and he had stayed at Cambridge to become scholar slash professor, left for a short time, gave up his career in the church in order to get married. But his wife died, his child died, and he was able to come back in. He hadn't been ordained yet, so he was able to resume his career at Cambridge, become ordained and become, you know, professor, scholar, student at the, at the university, a fellow of one of the colleges. Now, when the Reformation started, you remember that Henry VIII was looking for a rationale to justify breaking that first marriage with Catherine of Aragon. And through a set of circumstances we don't have to go into, Cranmer came to the attention of the king on account of his suggestion. And that was, well, if the Pope won't agree with you, why don't we survey the theological faculties at the universities of Europe? Present this issue to them about whether a man can marry his sister-in-law, which of course was the principle that Henry VIII had said was wrong against the Bible, and that's why his first marriage should be annulled or he should be granted a divorce. And it was Cranmer who said, well, let's let's go around the Pope and let's see what the theological faculties. And so they sent out letters to the various faculties. The English faculties, of course, said the king was right, but so did some of the continental faculties as well. Now, it didn't change the issue in Rome, but Henry VIII was pleased with this suggestion. Okay. Cranmer now becomes a part of the establishment, and the king is going to use him or uses him as a representative to various courts on the continent, including the emperor, Charles V. So Cranmer becomes an ambassador, if you will, for England at various courts, including that of the emperor. And that took him actually to Nuremberg. The city of Nuremberg was an imperial city and was often used by the emperors as a kind of capital. So he gets to Nuremberg, and Nuremberg was well on its way to becoming Lutheran. It's one of the, its representatives signed the Augsburg Confession in 1530, and we're just around that time that Cranmer is on the continent. And the main reformer, the Lutheran reformer of Nuremberg, was a fellow by the name of Osiander, Andreas Osiander. And Cranmer met they became friends, and Cranmer starts to listen to what Osiander has to say, and he finds much of that congenial. In addition to that, uh, Osiander has a niece that Cranmer is attracted to, and 
while he's there representing the King of England, he actually marries the niece of the Lutheran reformer of Nuremberg. He marries Osiander's niece. Now, what's interesting about that is not only the fact is he marrying into a Lutheran family, shall we say, but that he's getting married because it was illegal for the clergy to marry. And so he's violating church law in order to do the right thing. Prior, I shouldn't say prior to this, but the way it often worked in the late medieval church is that men would take unto themselves wives, but they wouldn't do so legally because they couldn't. But in Nuremberg, you could, even though it's a violation of church law, he could get married, and so he did. Now, it's just about that time that the old Archbishop of Canterbury dies. And really, very much to Cranmer's surprise, he gets a letter saying that the king has decided to nominate him as Archbishop of Canterbury. So he has to basically send his wife secretly back home. He himself comes to court and the the process goes through whereby he will become the Archbishop of Canterbury. And one of the things that had to be done was to get the Pope to okay the king's choice. The Reformation has not yet occurred. And so kind of one of the last things that Henry VIII and the Pope agreed upon was the nomination and election or choice of Cranmer as Archbishop of Canterbury. So when he is consecrated in March of 1533, he is the last Archbishop of Canterbury to hold that office with the approval of the Pope. And this is in spite of the fact that he's married and in spite of the fact that theologically speaking, he's not really a papist anymore, as we'll see from the rest of his career. Now, by the time Cranmer gets into office, Henry VIII has decided that he's going to do his own thing with respect to his quest for a divorce. And by that, I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit previously. Through Parliament, he passes legislation saying that there will be no decision in the English church that you can appeal to the Pope. So if the English church makes a decision on some matter, including the king's marriage, that's it. So that law was passed and Cranmer becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. Henry has already secretly gotten married to Anne Boleyn. They're living together. Anne Boleyn is pregnant, but unless that marriage is regularized, her child will be construed as illegitimate and will not be able to inherit the throne. So Cranmer has to move on this, and he does. He basically announces an investigation into the first marriage of Henry. Queen Catherine refuses to show up. And finally, in May of that year, one of the first things Cranmer does as Archbishop of Canterbury was to announce that that first marriage was illegitimate. And accordingly, Henry and Anne Boleyn are legally married. And Anne Boleyn then becomes Queen of England. And then in September of that year, her child is born. Now, remember, this whole thing started with Henry desiring to get to get a son. He wanted a son to inherit the throne. So in September, September 7th of 1533, a baby is born. And guess what? It's a girl. Okay. <laughs> it's a girl. Well, that didn't mean 
Henry wouldn't have a child, but nonetheless, he, this first one by Anne Boleyn is a girl. Well, I'm looking at the time. Do we need to take a break here? Yeah, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll pick up the story. Okay. Talking with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We're talking Reformation history right in the middle of quite the soap opera story with Dr. Cameron <laughs> That's exactly McKenzie. exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. All right, so we've got King Henry VIII and we've got Anne Boleyn and a child who ends up being a girl. Right. Where does it go from there? Well, okay. It's shortly after that, we're into 1534, and that act of supremacy is passed. And Cranmer is the one who kind of moves things through the parliament. He's kind of the political mastermind. And so Henry is supreme head of the church. He is married to Anne Boleyn, and he has a daughter. Now, Cranmer and Cromwell think now the time is to move forward in changing religion in England, but how are they going to do it? Well, there are a couple of things that they are able to persuade Henry would be good ideas. One of those is the English Bible. We talked on a previous occasion about the origins of the English Bible in the work of William Tyndale, who, when he was doing his translation work, was basically a heretic. He wasn't even in England. By the time we get to the mid 15th 30s, there are others who are interested in picking up where Tyndale left off. One of those was a fellow by the name of Miles Coverdale, and he ended up producing the first entire Bible printed in England. That came out in 1535. He dedicated it to the king in the hopes that the king would actually legalize it. And the story is told that Henry VIII did get a copy of this. He gave it to his bishops. And the bishops were supposed to read it and report back on it. And when they did, and they started to say this or that, Henry interrupted and said, well, is there any false doctrine in it? And the answer is, well, no, there isn't. And then Henry is supposed to have said, well, then in God's name, let it go forth. So the 1535 Coverdale Bible is a milestone in kind of changing attitudes. So Cromwell was able to persuade the king that as the head of the church, he should order that every church in England get a Bible. And when that order came out, it was phrased this way, they should get a Bible of the greatest volume, meaning the biggest size. So every church was going to get a big Bible. Cromwell had Coverdale prepare that Bible. And as I indicated on a previous occasion, 
what Coverdale did was to incorporate a lot of what Tyndale had done in the first place. So it's like Tyndale plus Coverdale and Coverdale's work producing this version of the Bible. It was finally finished in 1539 and it became like the first official English Bible in the Church of England. And the order was that every church was supposed to have a copy of it. And it was known as the Great Bible, not because of its quality, but because of its size. It was the Great Bible. For the second edition, Cranmer wrote a preface in which he explained the value of reading the Bible. It was the word of God for salvation, but it was also the word of God that instructed everybody on how to live and how to be good subjects of the king in England. So it was kind of a religious, but also a political message in that great Bible as well. But that's that was a big deal. We now have the English church kind of on record as wanting to be a Bible church. Now, you know, there are lots that can go into that thought, but at any rate, that was a big change in the life of the church. But you still have Latin as the language of worship. The Latin mass is still going on. All that kind of stuff is going on. And in fact, at a later date, the King of England had to, Henry had to issue other orders prohibiting people from reading the Bible during church services. So, yeah, so apparently what happened was that some of these eager beavers wanting to go back to have kind of a scriptural kind of piety again, when the priest was up front doing his thing, you know, in Latin, way at the front, you could hardly see him. Somebody else was at the lectern where the Bible was chained to it, and he was reading aloud from the scriptures. And people, (laughs) apparently a lot of people thought that was a great idea. But at any rate, this the Bible being legalized is an important thing. The other big deal thing that took place during the reign of Henry that kind of marked a shift from late medieval religion was the ending of monasticism. Now, everybody knows what a monk or a nun is today, but very few of us realize how pervasive it was in the late medieval church. There were just lots of religious that is monks or nuns of varying degrees in kinds. And in fact, in England, and this is true in else, elsewhere as well, these religious groups, who many of which had been founded centuries, had been endowed with property and owned a huge amount of the property wealth of England. I've seen figures as large as 20 or 25% was monastic wealth. So they're very wealthy. There aren't many people going into monasticism in these days. And so what Cromwell came up with was the idea, well, maybe we should shut down at least some of the smaller monasteries and then take the wealth of the monasteries and use it for better purposes, you know, maybe schools or hospitals or something like that. And so they passed legislation through parliament again to do that. And it worked very well. So Cromwell said, well, you know, it worked for these. Maybe we should do this a step further. Well, to make a long story short, between 1536 and 1540, they passed legislation that terminated all of the monast- all of the monasteries. So monasticism came to an end in England, but it did so for financial reasons, political reasons, not religious reasons. There was no law said, this is wrong, you shouldn't live like this. It was rather the king needs the money and he's going to use it for purposes of his own. So... It's a very important move. It changes religion in England, and it also shifts a lot of the wealth 
first of all, into the hands of the government. But in order for them to realize that wealth, they had to sell that property to others and so forth. And so the property owning class in England called the gentry, they ultimately become the great uh, beneficiaries of the closing of the monasteries. Henry gets the money, he spends it on war and stuff. So it's gone forever, but that property is in the hands of the gentry, which was an important development. It also gives the gentry kind of a vested interest in the reformation. Because, you know, if they would go Catholic again, what would happen to all this property that they had taken over from the monasteries? So those two things, the dissolution of the monasteries, end of monasticism, and the legalization of the English Bible are two things that separate the church in England from what it had been under the papacy. There's still no doctrinal change. There's still no doctrinal change. Now, Cranmer, and to a certain extent Cromwell also, wanted to promote doctrinal change. And at one point, a few years later, I think it was 1536, maybe 37, Cranmer even prepared a confession of faith called the Ten Articles. Now, this Ten Articles would not pass muster in the Lutheran Church, but for I'll give you an example. It affirmed only three sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, and penance, but it did not reject the other four. So, you know, you can say what you're for, but you also need to say what you're against. And likewise, justification. It affirmed justification by faith, did not say we oppose justification by works. Nonetheless, these 10 articles seem to be a step in the Protestant direction. Now, it was right about the same time that Cromwell was trying to promote a closer alliance between England and the Lutherans. Now, why the Lutherans? Well, Catherine of Aragon had been, was the aunt of Charles V. So Henry's divorce, Reformation, alienates him from Charles V. But the Lutherans were also alienated from Charles V. So it looked like it should be a very good match. And it was in connection with that match that Cromwell arranged for this marriage of Henry VIII to Anne of Cleves. Now, this turns out to be Henry's fourth marriage. I'm not going to talk about his third marriage. I'll just mention that Anne Boleyn was beheaded because she was convicted of adultery. And when your husband is the king of England, that's treason. So Henry is single. They arrange the marriage with Anne. She's the sister of the wife of the Lutheran elector of Saxony. She arrives. Henry meets her and says, eh, we're not going through with this marriage. And now there's all kinds of discussion as to why that took place, but it did. And so Anne of Cleves, that marriage kind of collapses, but Anne of all Henry's wives gets the best deal. She gets a pension, she gets a castle, she gets servants, and she does not have to live with Henry VIII. Okay, so, you know, and again, I'm worrying about time here, folks. Are we supposed to stop or how does this go? What? Let's let's pause here so that in our next episode we can pick up more on where we leave off okay. with Anne of Cleves. Okay. Okay. So takeaways from today: one, don't try to redefine things just for your dynastic purposes. <laughs> yeah. Two, 
It always goes well when the government manages the church. Yeah, super well. <laughs> right, right. That looks good. Yeah. So, yeah, two takeaways from today. Well, it's more to learn in our next episode. We'll continue the conversation next time. Our guest, the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, thanks so much for joining us again today. Well, it was great. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.